the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time to sit back, relax, and listen to Conversations with Joan. Conversations with Joan will inspire, motivate, and empower you. Live your best life now. Listen, learn, think, and decide. And now, here's your host, Joan Herman. Welcome to Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life's Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. Conversations with Joan focuses on topics that are important to your life, from health and wellness to professional development to personal well-being. Change makers join me to share their insights, tips, and strategies so you can thrive and live your best life now. Thank you for taking time for yourself, and thank you for letting us be a part of your life. Now, let's start talking. Narcissism is a term that gets thrown around quite a bit, but how much do we really know about it? Joining me today to talk about the complexities of this personality trait is Dr. W. Keith Campbell, author of the book, The New Science of Narcissism, Understanding One of the Greatest Psychological Challenges of Our Time and What You Can Do About It. Dr. Campbell uses the latest scientific research methods to dispel common myths and preconceptions, and he provides insight into one of the most interesting psychological challenges of our time. Welcome, Dr. Campbell. Thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks so much for having me. So, Doctor, we often hear people being described as a narcissist. What is the definition of a narcissist? It's a great question because it means several different things. So when somebody says narcissist, um, often we're talking about, you know, some traits like selfishness or self-centeredness, maybe arrogance. or um, So we, we, we have something in mind, but, but there's different meanings to this term in uh, you know, in the in the psychology world, we talk about narcissism as a trait, meaning that we all kind of have some level of narcissism from people who are at the high end to low end. And that trait of narcissism is a combination of a sense of entitlement and feeling you're better than others, sense of maybe superiority, but also charisma and extroversion and drive and charm and ambition. And so when you put those two things together, this combination of sort of entitlement and superiority, but also drive and ambition and charm, you get what we talk about as grandiose narcissism, which is this trait where often we see with, you know, politicians and our bosses and bad relationships. And we, we kind of see this, this more grandiose form of narcissism in a lot of places. And, and that's usually what people are talking about. But there's two other forms of narcissism that come up a lot. One is a more vulnerable form. And so these are folks that are think, of, think they're superior to others, think they deserve special treatment, but they're also a little shy. Sometimes we talk about it as covert or basement narcissism because you don't really see it as apparently. And, and they can be really insecure. So people who think they deserve special treatment but don't really get it, and they end up in therapy quite often because of the depression anxiety goes with that. And then finally, we have this this psychiatric or clinical term called narcissistic personality disorder or NPD. And so this is the personality disorder that goes with narcissism. And it's, it's a combination of a very high level of, of narcissism, but also to make it a disorder, it has to have some sort of impairment. It has to mess up your life. So if you're super narcissistic, you think you're awesome and it works for you and everyone agrees, it's not really a clinical disorder. But if you think you're awesome and it's ruining your marriage because you can't really love your family and it's ruining your work because you're, you know, being dishonest with your books or you're cheating people, uh, then it can be diagnosed as a disorder. So really, there's there's sort of three ways we use narcissism in the psychology world. And that's what makes it so complicated when it gets into the, you know, the everyday world. Doctor, you've said that this is one of the greatest psychological challenges of our time. Has narcissism always been this prevalent, or is there something in society that's driving it today? 
Yeah, so, so narcissism is something that will emerge in societies when it's allowed to. And when it's allowed to is when you have a society that really focuses on individualism so that everybody does what they want and don't really focus so much on the community. And it happens in a society where you can get away with a lot, where you can present an image of yourself that might not be true. So imagine you live in a small town and you know everybody and somebody says that he's a big deal. You go, look, I, I went to school with you. You're not a big deal. It doesn't work. But in a, in a big urban center, if I move in there and start saying I'm a big deal and put on social media posts and, and build this brand, I can convince people I'm a big deal. Mm-hmm. So we have a world now where people who are narcissistic, who are self-promoting, who are self-enhancing can be very effective because you have to do it to survive. So right. I think we have a world that's really conducive to narcissism. It is. It's a world on social media where everyone's trying to outdo each other. It's, you know, see me, see me. I have something to say. And and I can see how that would lead to the problem. Oh, uh, yes, for sure. It's and, and, you know, I don't mean to say, like, we're all doing this. I'm, I'm on social media right now. I'm on media right now uh, talking to you. And, and I hope people listen. So it's not that there's anything wrong with wanting to get attention. There's nothing wrong with social media. But for people who really are focused on getting attention, who are really interested in showing off how awesome they are, how much they know, or how they're smarter than you, or they want to criticize people all the time, social media is really attractive to people like that. And in the research, we find people who are narcissistic just have more connections on social media in general, more friends, more followers, more likes. It, it just works. You had mentioned before that sometimes the person can't really love his or her family. Are they able to make strong emotional contact with another person? The reason I ask this, I believe that I was actually married to a narcissist. And the reason I believe that is I think he was looking for a caregiver, someone who took care of him. And, And when I changed the dynamics in our relationship, I did that for 23 years. When I finally said, what about me? And I needed something in return. He took his love. And the first thing he said was, I no longer love you. And so his love was attached to me performing an action that he needed. So when someone doesn't do what the narcissist needs, are they truly able to love? That is a, I, I'm sorry uh, mm-hmm. for, for that experience. Um, but you're hitting on a really good point in that in our relationships, we're often interested in the couple different things to compete with each other. One is we really want love. And love is often about giving things, you know, giving love, helping people, being nurturing, and in turn being loved and being nurtured. And that's really important. And the other thing we want is somebody to, you know, maybe give us some status, pat us on the back, make us feel good, tell us we're, you know, good people, take care of us, and make us better. And that's a great thing, too. Uh, The challenge with narcissism is you get in a relationship and you're really focused on what you can get out of it, what you can extract from the other person. Do I, does my partner, is my partner attractive and does that make me look important or powerful or high in status? Does my partner tell me I'm awesome all the time to help me regulate my emotions so I always feel I'm good about myself? You know, does my partner defer her needs or his needs with work so that my work comes first? So what happens is you get all these conflicts where the narcissist in the relationship does well with me first. And as long as, as long as me first happens, that's a great relationship for the narcissist. But when me first goes away, like in your case, it's not that important. And what you're telling me is that your partner said, you know, I don't love you anymore. Now, that's shocking. And there's been a loving relationship because it just doesn't work like that. You can't right. turn it on and off. Right. Um, but you can if your love is, is basically a currency that you're giving to get something because it's, it's not that important to you. And it's very hard to understand that somebody can have a really awesome car and that car could be more important to that person than a loving relationship. But that happens sometimes. And so then do these people have more difficulty feeling empathy or sympathy for another person? Oh, oh for sure. It's just not as much in their, in their language. So there is an idea, and it's still around, that people who are narcissistic and, and, you know, when you get to the more extremes, you're talking about psychopathy. And, um, but when people are narcissistic, that they can't feel love and that they're incapable of doing that, it doesn't seem to be the case. It's, for most people, 
there, there's a capacity for love, but it's an underdeveloped capacity because for people who are narcissistic, love is sort of secondary to ego needs, affection, attention, status, being awesome, being praised. All those things are more important than love. So they've spent their life figuring out how to get praised and positive feedback and attention and fame and status, but they haven't worked on that love muscle, that, that capacity to connect with people because it's not as important. It's almost like they're uneven in, in how they're developed. And I would assume then a person who is an unconditional giver, who just gives of him or herself, that would be someone who would, you know, be ripe for the picking for a narcissist. So how can that person self-protect? <laughs> that You are absolutely right. Um, I, I wrote the book called The New Science of Narcissism. And the problem with that is there's always newer science. And, and after I wrote it, there was this recent paper came out that looked at people attracted to narcissists. And it's consistent with what we've seen is that what we've seen in the past is that people who fall in love very quickly, who fall in love fully and quickly and give themselves uh, without reservation are more at risk because they're easier victims. They're not bad people. In fact, they're often lovely people. But the trick with getting in relationships with narcissists is you want to go slowly because if you go slowly, you'll see the problems. If you go too quickly, you're going to fall in love and it's going to be exciting and you're not going to see the problems until it's too late. So my advice is, you know, go slow. Go slow in relationships in general. It's going to keep you out of some trouble. And what would be some of the warning signs, the clear warning signs that we should be looking for? You know, with narcissism, there's this stuff that's that's sort of apparent, you know, the materialism and the nice dress and the, you know, the the self-presentation and different things like that. But often those qualities are very attractive. And so when we meet people who are narcissistic, I mean, when I meet people who are really narcissistic, I often just like them because they seem so charming and confident. Mm-hmm. And so when I really like somebody, I always make that a warning sign. <laughs> but but in, in reality, the thing to do is look at somebody's track record. So if you're starting a relationship with somebody, look at their past relationships, look at their history. People who are narcissistic and self-centered or ego-involved will hurt people, and they will do it throughout their lives. People don't change that much. And so if you see a trail of destruction, you stay away from somebody. If you see somebody had loving relationships, you're like, that's a person who's capable of having loving relationships. So focus on the past more than what's put in front of you because people who are narcissistic are charming. That's, I mean, that's part of the deal. But So they're going to convince you, you know, that they're better than they are. Can a narcissist make a strong leader? Can they ever use this trait to their advantage? Oh, all the time, yeah. That's one of those places narcissism really works is, in the short term, I should say, is mm-hmm. that when we've done research on leadership, people who are narcissistic, the more grandiose narcissists, not the more insecure ones, uh, but the more uh, secure narcissists rise into leadership very quickly. They want to be leaders. Uh, they look for opportunities to be leaders. So when we study leadership emergence, that's kind of the scientific term, emergent leadership, uh, narcissism predicts that. Where narcissism falls apart in leadership is over the long term, where with narcissistic leaders we find more you know, sloppy ethics, rule-breaking, um, you know, cheating, that kind of, you know, there's sort of darker behaviors that, mm-hmm. that go on with narcissistic leaders, but they're very good at becoming leaders and they can be good leaders, but they're often in very chaotic situations. It's a challenge to be in a personal relationship with this person. Absolutely. Yeah. The, the, the big, a big challenge with narcissism and maybe the big challenge with narcissism Either if you're very narcissistic, you're relating with people, is that relationship piece. It's that because relationships are always about giving something up that you want to get something bigger in the longer term. Marriage, you give something up to get something bigger. You know, friendship, you give something up to get something bigger. You join a team, you give something up to, to get something bigger. And that we make that sacrifice all the time in life. But for people who are narcissistic, that's more challenging. And so there's going to be lots of problems when they do it. So somebody, let's say, is married to a narcissist and they've been in this relationship 20, 30 years and, you know, they're finally seeing the other person for what he or she really is. What are their options? How can they manage this and mitigate the damage? You know, it's, 
it's a really good question you're asking and the challenging one because if you're if you're starting a relationship, you're in a, an abusive relationship. I mean, my advice is just avoid it. You know, which is the same advice you give your daughter and everyone gives. Just get out, especially if you're being hurt. Mm-hmm. Um, but you've been in marriage 20 years and things, you kind of have a way it works and it's stable and there's no real abuse. And people are going, you know, do I stick with this? Do I just go get free and try something else? I wouldn't be afraid to go try some sort of therapy or some sort of counseling or some sort of work uh, to try to make things better. And the reason why is because we're finding in the research more and more that personality can change. It's not easy to change, uh, but people can change. Uh, the biggest, or one of the biggest challenges with narcissism is that people don't want to change. It's, it's working out pretty well for them. And in the case of your husband, you know, it sounds like you got an ultimatum and, and it wasn't enough. So it's not necessarily going to work to give people a, a, a chance to change. But I think it's possible. and I think it's often worth a shot more than I would have if you'd asked me this 10 years ago. Well, and you know what I find, and just to, to stay along the lines of my story, he just replaced me. He just went and found somebody else. And so, you know, I, I think that what you're saying until a person really wants to change, I was going to ask you if there is a success rate with it, because I would think, like you said, it is working out pretty well for them on the surface anyway. I mean, it really isn't, but they think it is. Yeah, it is. It, it absolutely is on the surface because you know, if, if somebody's romantic interest has as much meaning to them as a car, it can be changed. And that's very hard for people to understand. You're like, I can't change my wife because she's my wife. There's no other person in the world that would fill that role. But if I thought my wife's role was really just to make me look good, I could find someone else to do that. No problem. So it's easy for them to change. Um, in terms of the numbers, it's very hard to get estimates because we don't have any great, you know, clinical trial studies on narcissism, unfortunately. But it seems when I look across all the data that if people are willing to commit to some sort of therapy, and it doesn't seem to matter which kind, if you can just find one to commit to some sort of treatment or some sort of intervention, uh, there does seem to be possibility for change. But the challenge, again, with people who are narcissistic is getting to do it. Doctor, what do you believe is at the root of the problem? How can we try to keep our children from going down this path? Uh, you know, it's, it's a mix of genetics. It's a little bit of parenting, but not so much. It's, it's sort of it's culture people grow up in. Um, my, my simple advice for parents, I'll try to keep this short, because this is a concern with everyone, including me, is first of all, be a good role model. You know, that, that should go without saying and then the things I focus on is it's not so much keeping your kid humble because, you know, you don't necessarily want to do that. But I say CPR, focus on compassion or caring, you know, be compassionate and hope your children are compassionate reward them for being caring and compassionate because that, that love or compassion is a really good buffer for narcissism. The second piece that I think people neglect and I think is super important is passion. Kids who do things they're passionate about, you know, it could be dance, could be sports, could be writing, could be, you know, I don't know, Minecraft, whatever the kids are into. If you're passionate about stuff, it doesn't necessarily make you narcissistic. It makes you love that thing and it makes you share it in in a loving way. So you can be really engaged and really good at things and not be that ego involved because of passion. And the third piece, and this is the, you know, a little more parental, is, is focus on responsibility taking. It's just one thing we see with narcissism is this real strategic or slippery use of responsibility taking where people are narcissistic will take responsibility for any good outcome they see and they'll blame anyone else when things go wrong. So if you can teach kids to take responsibility when things go right and also, and this is more important, take responsibility when things go wrong, that's going to be a buffer against narcissism. Are there any myths that maybe we didn't touch upon that you think are important for people to know? There's a few out there, and I think one that, that's been around a long time um, is that people who are narcissistic deep down are really insecure. And the reason people have this, this sort of myth is because there are these two kinds of narcissists, these more grandiose forms and these more vulnerable forms, and they, they want to think they're all the same, that they're all vulnerable deep down inside. And it just doesn't seem to be the case. People who are kind of confident and arrogant are often kind of confident and arrogant. And maybe they say they're a 10 and they really think they're an eight, 
but they're not deep down insecure individuals. They're not. And so, and, and sort of the corollary of that is people will say, if you just find something narcissistic and you really love them and they can get past that deep insecurity, they won't be narcissistic. And I've seen no evidence for that at all. And in fact, there's some evidence that if you're too giving to people who are narcissistic, they'll just take advantage of you even more. So that's the one myth I'm concerned about, the sort of the, the wounded child inside the narcissist. Not like the people who are narcissistic don't have trauma, they don't need help, but, but the idea that you can find that and heal that I think can be a little dangerous. The book is The New Science of Narcissism, Understanding One of the Greatest Psychological Challenges of Our Time and What You Can Do About It. If you'd like to get more information about Dr. Campbell and his work, you can visit keithcampbell.com. And as always, you can visit our website, cyacyl.com. That stands for Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life. While on the site, listen to Pasha's On Demand, read our digital magazine, and be sure to sign up for our mailing list. Doctor, in our final moments, what's the takeaway? What would you like to leave our listeners with? You know, I think just understanding that narcissism is, it can mean a few different things in different in, in different contexts, that it can be a trait that we all have, or it can be a, a clinical disorder. But if you're throwing the term around and, and you're being indiscriminate, so you're saying your friend has a clinical disorder, it can be a, it can be a little bit troubling. So just try to be thoughtful with terms and maybe focus on specific behaviors before labeling people. Dr. Campbell, thank you so much for joining us. It was such a pleasure speaking with you. Oh, thank you. That was great. This is Conversations with Jones. Stay with us. We'll be right back. How much can the right foods do for you? A lot more than weight control. The right foods can increase your energy, improve your outlook, and strengthen your body's natural defenses. What foods can do all that? Primo Health Solutions will show you using metabolic typing. This remarkable program lets your body tell you what it needs to work best. Call them today at 347-903-7030. That's 347-903-7030. Or go to PrimoHealthSolutions.com. Using metabolic typing, Primo Health Solutions will let your body work best. Hi, this is Joan Herman. Did you know that Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life publishes a free monthly digital magazine that can be read online or emailed to your inbox? Every month, nationally recognized leaders in their field provide information to educate, inspire, and motivate you. We believe in a holistic approach to life, incorporating mind, body, and spirit. Check out a copy of 24-7 Magazine, visit CYACYL.com, and be sure to tell your friends. productive life, but sometimes we just need a little help. Our Coach on Call experts provide strategies to help you live your best life now. Joining us today is Eileen Lashensky, the founder and creator of Find Body Freedom, a program developed for women who want to change their relationship with their bodies. For over three decades, Eileen battled with her own issues with body image, weight, and her relationship with food. After trying every diet on the market, she realized that the answers to her struggles were right inside her body. Since then, Eileen has been working with women to guide them to discover their own innate body wisdom and to find body freedom. Welcome, Eileen. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm so happy to be here again. Thank you, Joan. Eileen, society portrays an unrealistic standard of the female body, and it's something that affects all of us. We're, we're hearing more and more today, though, about body diversity. Can you explain to us what this term means? Uh, yes, and this question is uh, a bit layered, so please uh, bear with me. Firstly, we are seeing an increasing number of women in commercials and on TV and in movies that aren't model thin. Yay for that. And this comes in the wake of women's groups, a number of them speaking out about the lack of body diversity in mainstream media. Another yay for us. Secondly, uh, the term body diversity or size diversity, and these things can be used interchangeably, these terms, refers to the fact that every person's genetic inheritance uh, influences her bone structure, her size, 
her shape, and her weight. So in other words, everybody is different. And the important thing for us as women, I think, uh, the more we see bodies of different shapes and sizes, the more we can get comfortable with our own bodies. And that's the way uh, theory goes. And I am, uh, from my own personal experience and that of my clients also, I'm in agreement with that. And just if I could add here, just yesterday, actually, a colleague of mine uh, sent me snippets of um, Rihanna, the singer Rihanna, her um, uh, fashion show that focused on lingerie. And in that fashion show, it was incredible to watch all different shapes and sizes of women. And what was so wonderful to see was all different shapes and sizes of men as well. And both men and women were saying, it's so wonderful to see myself reflected in this fashion show. And Eileen, I couldn't agree more because as a woman who has struggled with weight for most of my life, I know what happens when we get that single beautiful body image given to us over and over again. What do you believe happens to a woman's body image when she gets that same message? And it's a message that's very unrealistic. It's hard to achieve. Uh, well, I totally agree, and of course, you know my story as well, Joan, and I uh, struggled as well, and, you know, every now and again, I can still feel the poke of scars from those early childhood experiences of being an overweight kid, but I'm going to start with a recent statistic, which I think is, it, it just says it all and is incredible. 91% of women are unhappy with their bodies, 91%. And the researchers asked the women why, and that's because they, well, the theory goes, only 5% of women naturally possess the body type portrayed in the media. And so if only 5% of us have that body type, and the other nine, 95 of us are scrambling in whatever way possible to try and achieve that. That leaves us uh, with depleted energy and depleted joy and vibrancy and all of those wonderful things that make us uh, so special. So if we don't see our natural selves reflected in mainstream media, we don't feel acceptable and lovable. And that is very much a problem. You and I both know what that's like. And we become invisible, invisible, even to ourselves. We hide. Uh, we have to diet. We have to exercise in the extreme. And we have to undergo body reshaping surgeries. There's something wrong with the premise that um, we're supposed to look a certain way. And you and I, Eileen, we grew up in a different era, and look how we ended up feeling. I can't imagine <laughs> what it's like for a young girl today who is bombarded with this messaging seven days a week, 24 hours a day. So what is it that's happening to our young girls? Um, well, um, I'll start out with uh, another statistic from the National uh, Eating Disorders Association. Uh, and it says 81% of 10-year-old girls, 10-year-old girls, 81% of 10-year-old girls are afraid of being fat. And so I, I start with that because little girls and adolescents are like sponges, Joan. They absorb everything. And what they absorb are images and messages that kind of sort of scream to them, you are flawed. You are overweight. You are flabby. You need this cream or this product or this program or this diet. And if you purchase it or ask your mom to, um, you'll be pretty or sexy or whatever, et cetera, et cetera. And also a problem. Again, this is a, you know, a, a multifaceted question here. Little girls watch and listen to their moms and they intuit how mom feels about her own body. They absorb that, but it's not necessarily a direct message. 
Mom might be sending the messages, oh, you're beautiful, just as you are. But mom looks in the mirror and pulls a face. Or mom looks at herself in a three-way mirror and goes, oh, I look so fat in these pants. Um, whatever it is that moms are doing subtly or not so subtly, little girls absorb that. Eileen, thank you so much for joining us. If you would like to learn more about Eileen, her work, or her programs, you can visit findbodyfreedom.com. Or as always, to hear more from Eileen, you can visit our website, cyacyl.com slash Eileen. We'll be right back. This is WNYM, Hackensack, New Jersey, New York City. Welcome back to Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for staying with us. Most of us have encountered aggressive people and difficult confrontations. When faced with anger, we tend to react emotionally, either withdrawing or responding with matched aggression. Today's guest, Douglas Knoll, believes that neither approach brings peace and understanding. He's here to explain how to successfully and efficiently calm an angry person or diffuse a situation. Doug is an internationally recognized mediator and peacemaker who specializes in difficult conflicts. He's the author of De-Escalate, How to Calm an Angry Person in 90 Seconds or Less. Welcome, Doug. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Joan. Great to be here. So, Doug, no one is immune to being part of a difficult situation. We've all encountered that one person who really knows how to push our buttons. So what do you believe? <laughs> right. It's true. And, you know, I actually did the other night at a meeting. I wish I had read the book before that night. So <laughs> what do you believe are the biggest mistakes we make when dealing with an angry person? The first biggest mistake we make is that we listen to their words. And when we listen to their words, because that's what we're trained to do from the time we're small children, their words trigger us. We become immediately reactive uh, and either defensive or aggressive, as you said, ourselves. And now we're sucked into the conflict vortex and we have no ability or let me let me just say very limited ability to get ourselves out. And we have to recognize that when people are emotional, when they're, when they're very angry and insulting and disrespectful, the thinking part of their brain, their prefrontal cortex is completely shut down. They are, they're operating on programming that was programmed into them when they were children, and they are being completely reactive. And so we have to have a different approach if we want to successfully get them calmed down to solve whatever the underlying problem is. And that's what I've been able to develop uh, over the past 15 years in my, in my mediation practice and in my prison project. So, and that's the secret. The secret is learning not to listen to the words. And you know, Doug, what some people, they may do what, what I tend to do is I, I don't like confrontation. I don't like to argue. I tend to just withdraw, ignore, and yes. avoid. And so that's not a good practice either. No. Well, conflict avoidance is a very common tactic that people unconsciously adopt. And sometimes avoidance is the right thing to do. Sometimes it's not. But co avoiding conflict in all cases is disempowering because that's how bullies basically get their way. Right. Or people, that's how disrespectful people get their way. And, and that's not right or just or fair, uh, nor is it moral, nor is it, nor is it polite. So we have to be able to have the skills that when we decide that we have to really calm somebody down to get to a problem. We have to have that skill set. So, so conflict avoidance is a tool. Aggression is a tool. Violence is a tool. And de-escalation is a tool. And which tool you want to use in any given moment is going to be determined by context and, and the situation and your own, your own particular um, needs in that moment. So just recognize that these are all tools. And the more tools we have in our box, the better equipped we are to deal with these very difficult situations particularly angry, disrespectful, and insulting people. So, Doug, let's talk about your process. What are the three essential steps? Step number one, ignore the words. We've been trained from the time we started speaking, and even before then, to listen to the words because we're taught that the words have meaning. But in this situation, for the, this 90 seconds, those words mean nothing. So ignore them, because if you listen to the words, they're going to trigger you, and you're going to get in trouble. So just ignore the words completely. Okay. Step number two. Pay attention to the emotional experience of the speaker. And that means that you're going to be looking for all the emotions that are there. Because typically when somebody is enraged or angry or insulting, there is more than one emotion. Emotions come in complexes. They come in patterns and groups. There's never just anger, for example. So you're going to be looking for anger. 
you're going to be looking for somebody feeling disrespected. You're going to look, be looking for sadness, fear, anxiety, grief, shame, guilt, um, and then way down low, deep, 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 uh, a sense of being unloved and abandoned. And all these things are all happening all at once, but it's all being presented, let's say, through an intense emotions such as anger. So you're going to guess at the emotions. And then the last step, which is the counterintuitive part of all of this, and this is the part that it's easy to say, hard to get, is that we're going to reflect back the emotions we're guessing at. We're going to reflect them back to the speaker using a very simple use statement. So I would say, hey, Joan, you're really angry right now. You're really frustrated. You feel completely disrespected and unsupported. Um, you feel like you've been treated really unfairly and uh, you're a little bit anxious about what's going to happen, and you have a lot of sadness and grief that you seem to be all alone in the world. So by doing that, mm -hmm. thing, you're basically acknowledging that you're understanding how the other person's feeling. You're not battling exactly. them. You're validating them. Exactly correct. And what, the, what brain science shows us, especially through a 2007 study by Matthew Lieberman at UCLA, is that when people get very emotional, their prefrontal cortex shuts down. When we label back their emotions to them, we, we, we give them back their emotions, reflect them back in these very simple use statements. We're literally lending them our prefrontal cortex so that they can process the emotional experience. And what the scanning studies show is that when we do this, the emotional centers of the brain immediately quiet down. I mean, it's almost instantaneous. It's, and it works every single time because that's we're hard. Our brains are hardwired for this. So that's why this 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 skill is so powerful and, and so effective because it's working with the brain, not against the brain. It's working with how the brain is hardwired to receive information in this moment. Extremely powerful. So, Doug, we ignore the words. We guess at the emotions and we reflect the emotions back. What happens next? So. It depends. Two things can happen. Well, two, a couple of things can happen. First, if if you are successful the first time through, in other words, the person, whatever it is, you're successful and you de-escalate, you're going to see four unconscious reactions. Again, this is outside of consciousness. People don't even know they do it. One, they're going to nod their head affirmatively up and down. Two, they're going to give some kind of verbal response like, yeah, exactly. That's exactly how I feel. <laughs> I might even shout it out, right? Okay. Okay. Three, th there's going to be a dropping of the shoulders. And four, there's going to be, be a big sigh of relief. And they won't even know they're doing it. You're watching for those four unconscious reactions. When you hit those reactions, you know that you're getting them de-escalated. If they persist in yelling and screaming and doing whatever they want, you just stay with them, follow them like a horse, and just keep reflecting back the emotions. And you may have to reflect back the same emotion over and over again. You're really angry. You're really frustrated. Man, you are really enraged. Man, you are really hot and angry. You just have to keep with them, and eventually it will penetrate. Now, after 90 seconds, if you're not getting anywhere, this is not the time. <laughs> Back off and say, hey, you, you know, you need let, let's let's just take a pause and and take a walk and take a deep breath and hopefully and then come at it again in five or 10 or 15 minutes. But typically you can deescalate somebody in 30 to 45 seconds. And there are other situations that happen. For example, people block. So you we've all had situations where a person has just told us the same. They tell us a story. They're really emotional about it. They get to the end and then rewind and tell us this, you know, exactly the same words and do it all again. That's called blocking. Mm -hmm. Typically, that means we haven't touched the, uh, deep enough in the emotions. And that's when we're going to get into sadness and grief and being unloved and feeling abandoned and that sort of thing. Um, so it just means you got to go deeper. So there's a lot that has to go on in a short period of time. You need to try to understand what's going on with the other person and remove your ego from the equation. That's right. Well, it happens automatically. That, that is removing the ego. And that's a really cool thing that happens. The benefit to the speaker is that you get them calmed down. But there are huge benefits to you as the listener. The first is that you're completely empowered. And when you're focusing on their emotions, there's no room in your existence to get triggered by their words. So you feel completely empowered, centered, in control. You feel no anxiety. I mean, it's amazing how quiet you stay inside yourself in, in the face of this hurricane of words that are coming at you. The second thing that happens, which is even more remarkable, is that for the time that you're actually reflecting back the emotions, your ego dissolves. And you experience this transcendental oneness with the other person. It's the, it's the most bizarre experience. And it lasts for about 15 or 20 seconds, but it happens every single time. So the practice almost becomes a spiritual practice mm -hmm. in that your, your ego is dissolving. And all of a sudden you just, you feel like, you know, you're just this being out there doing this stuff and there's no ego involvement at all. It's, it's a very cool experience and it's very unique to, to this kind of a skill use. It's very powerful. Now, Doug, parents deal with these types of situations on a regular basis. Does this all work with children? 
it not only works with children, it's essential to use it with children. And the reason that it's essential is because from about 18 months of, of after birth until about four years old, the emotional centers of a child's brain are maturing. The child has to go through a whole range of emotional experiences in order for the brain to understand how to link up the affect that's occurring inside the brain. That's what we call the actual physiological neurons firing in the brain feeling what's going on in the physical body and then how we how we make sense of that which is what we call emotion the labels we give such as anger and rage a child has to learn all this stuff and build a database of emotions if we tell a two-year-old boy for example don't be a sissy grow up don't cry what are we telling that little boy about emotions we're not allowing him to build a database of emotions that's going to allow him to be a healthy functioning young man and at 15 years old when he starts getting arrested in girls there's a train wreck going to happen so what we should be doing is when a when a when a child has a tantrum for example rather than yelling at the kid and telling him to shut up we should be saying you're really angry you're really frustrated you're not getting what you want you just feel really thwarted and nobody's supporting you and you don't feel loved stuff like that Right. The kid right. will quiet down in about 30 seconds, say, yeah, and now you can problem solve. Now you can say, okay, let's sort through what the problem is, appropriate to the age, of course. It's brilliant with children, and I submit that if parents did this with their kids, they would be teaching children emotional intelligence at a very young age, and their kids are going to be so much happier by the time they get to school age. It's amazing. And I think, Doug, you know, a lot of the problem with communication is, People just don't listen to each other. We're so worried That's about right. the next thing that we're going <laughs> to say that we don't even know what the other person is trying to convey to us. And so That's I correct. think this is brilliant because it forces you to become an active listener and a participant in a dialogue with another person. That's correct. We, we talk about, I, as I teach this, I talk about you, uh, the tracks. There, you, you have your own track and the other person, the speaker, has his or her own track. When you are doing this kind of listing, you are going to stay on that speaker's track. You're never going to lift that train off and put it onto your track. So it's very different from conversation. And the rules are different. The rules of listening are different than the rules for conversation. If I'm truly listening to you, I can interject all the times, whatever emotional experience you're having, Joan, and I can say, you're really frustrated right now. You're really angry or, wow, you're really scared. And I can interrupt. If it were conversation, you would think I was being very rude and impertinent and patronizing. But when I'm listening to you with emotions, you experience a very deep empathic connection with me. And, and as I say, it, you experience being listened into existence. The book is De-Escalate, How to Calm an Angry Person in 90 Seconds or Less by Douglas Knoll. If you would like to get more information about the book or Doug and his work, you can visit DougKnoll.com. That's N-O-L-L, DougKnoll.com. Doug, thank you so much for being here with us. As I said, I wish I had read this book before I was in a meeting the other evening, but I'm really <laughs> glad that I have now because, you know, you've given me tools that, that can change my life and so many others. And I hope everyone will get a copy of the book, Deescalate. It really will make an impact on your relationship. So thank you. Thanks, Joan. Thanks for having me on the show. This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Did you know that 70% of your immune system lives in your gut? Everything you eat and drink affects the way your body works and ultimately the way you feel. Think about it. Everything you ingest, whether that's food, beverages, or supplements, either fortifies your immune system or weakens it. What are you doing to help support it today so that you have the right defense system in place when this cold and flu season kicks in? Hi, I'm Jill Merriman, a doTERRA certified essential oil specialist. I love helping people improve their overall well-being by using doTERRA essential oils because they're safe, effective, and natural. These wholesale priced products are CPTG, which means certified pure therapeutic grade. They're considered a medical grade and beyond organic. During these tough times, there is more emphasis placed on self-care as a way to keep our immune system strong. The immune system helps the body stay healthy. Without support, it cannot defend you from potential external threats. Along with adequate sleep, regular exercise, and a balanced diet, essential oils can help boost your immune system. One of my favorite go-to doTERRA products is their Protective Blend On Guard. With this product line consisting of an essential oil, gel caps, toothpaste, mouthwash, hand sanitizer, spray cleaner, and even laundry detergent, OnGuard provides an excellent line of defense. Use on a daily basis, it can help keep your immune system strong and your home environment clean. If you're open to learning more on how essential oils can help you, contact me at jill at jillmarin.com for a complimentary 30-minute wellness consultation. 
today's supercharged do it now world convenience is key now you can listen to conversations with joan at a time that's best for you simply visit your favorite podcast site new shows drop every monday start your week on a positive note listen to conversations with joan Does your business have a results-driven culture and is it important? Having a GPS of where you want to go and how you're going to get there is important. However, if your teams don't follow that plan in alignment with your desired values, attitudes, and behaviors, it will be difficult to achieve execution at the highest possible level. Culture in any organization, no matter what size, is created and anchored by the leadership of the organization. It's the unique DNA of the organization. Whether the leadership team has multiple members or if it's a leadership team of one, they create the culture of the organization intentionally or unintentionally. Creating a culture or improving a culture with intention will create a higher level of results. Culture is felt, not seen with the eye, but implied in how you are made to feel. Individuals, team members, and customers experience your culture. Contributors who work for an organization with a results-oriented culture go to work every morning, not just for a paycheck, but because they genuinely feel they are contributing to something bigger than themselves. Customers often come back because of their experience. They want to know what they can expect from your product or service. They want to feel a positive experience. They want to live your culture. And if you allow your customers to feel and live your culture, they will keep coming back. If you'd like to learn more, contact me, Bertha Robinson, at 732-705-5060 or visit my website at star1professional.com. today is Dr. Stephen Gundry, a cardiothoracic surgeon who has written more than 200 articles and books about cardiac surgery and the nutritional reversal of heart disease, high cholesterol, diabetes, and hypertension. His new book is The Plant Paradox, The Hidden Dangers in Healthy Foods That Can Cause Disease and Weight Gain. He's here today to discuss the dangers of lectin. Welcome, Dr. Gundry. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Joan. So, Doctor, talk to us about the dangers of lectin. Why is this plant-based protein toxic and inflammatory? So, lectins are a protein that plants use to, believe it or not, keep from being eaten. Plants were here first. They had it really good before animals arrived because nobody wanted to eat them. But when animals arrived, plants couldn't run, they couldn't hide, they couldn't fight but they're chemists of incredible ability. So what they do is make a protein that's called a lectin or lectins that are designed to make the animal ill or not feel well or not thrive. And a smart animal says, you know, every time I eat these plant babies or plant compounds, I don't do very well and I'm gonna go eat something else. The plant wins, the animal wins, everybody's happy. And then humans arrive. When when we eat things that make our gut bloat or not feel well or we get headaches or we get arthritis or we get high blood pressure or we get heartburn, we continue to eat these things and take oh, antacids or Aleve or Advil or antidepressants, not realizing that the plant is trying to get our attention. And the book is the result of 17 years of research with my patients, looking at blood tests every three months, giving them or taking away certain foods and looking at the inflammation that we can detect on their blood vessels and that we publish. And it's a real eye-opener that a lot of what we think are healthy foods are actually very unhealthy. So, Doctor, what types of foods are we talking about? So, uh, the two main groups that we weren't designed to eat are grains and beans. Uh, The second main group that we're not designed to eat are American plants. Believe it or not, none of us are from America. We're from Europe, Asia, or Africa. So none of us were exposed to the plant lectins in American plants. So the nightshade family, potatoes, eggplant, tomatoes, peppers, and goji berries, the squash family like zucchini, the Two American beans that we call nuts, peanuts and cashews, are really nasty for us. And the American grains, corn and quinoa. Believe it or not, the French banned corn in 1900 as unfit for human consumption and only good for making pigs fat. And if we've learned anything about corn, it's really good for making you 
fat. Doctor, you've listed foods that many people eat daily because they believe that they're healthy. Are there things that can be done to reduce the risks? Yeah, so one of the things you can do with uh, any of these problematic foods is to use a pressure cooker. So beans and lentils, you'll destroy the lectins with a pressure cooker. Uh, the other thing you can do, believe it or not, most of the nastiness of grains is in the hull. And that's why traditional cultures have always taken the hull off of grains. You can also peel vegetables like zucchini to get a lot of the lectins out. And the same way with tomatoes and peppers, if you peel and de-seed them, they're actually quite safe. Doctor. In our final moments, what should our diet look like? What do you recommend we eat on a daily basis? Great question. We're designed to eat leaves, and we're designed to eat flowers, like broccoli and cauliflower. We're designed to eat shoots, like, for instance, asparagus. We're designed to eat fats, like avocados, like olive oil. In fact, my, one of my sayings is the only purpose of food is to get olive oil into your mouth. The other thing we are designed to eat are nuts, like walnuts, like pecans, like macadamia nuts, uh, like pistachios are also great for you. And I, I actually try to get people to have a half a cup of nuts every day. Doctor, thank you so much for being here with us. If you'd like to get more information, get a copy of The Plant Paradox, The Hidden Dangers in Healthy Foods That Cause Disease and Weight Gain by Dr. Stephen Gundry. And you can get more information about Dr. Gundry at drgundry.com. Once again, Doctor, thank you for being here. Thanks so much for having me. joining us, I hope you found the show informative. At Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life, we believe that knowledge is power. Take what you've learned, apply it, and live your best life now. Remember that the information provided is the opinion of our guest and should never replace the advice of a professional who knows your personal situation. If you'd like more information, visit our website, cyacyl.com. That stands for Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life. While on our site, listen to past shows on demand, read the digital magazine, sign up for our mailing list, and be sure to follow the show on social media. Until next time, this is Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. The preceding pre-recorded program sponsored by Maximilian Communications, LLC.